Good morning. It's great to be with you on this, well, I don't know, I guess, wintry morning. I mean, we shouldn't be surprised, right? But it always does surprise me. And then I kind of look out there and I see it snowing and I think, well, it can't possibly last. And then it just keeps snowing and whatever. But it's, it's fine. It's Minnesota. It's Minnesota. I'm talking myself into it. It's great to be with you. <laughs> Have you ever tried to put something together that like has a lot of different pieces and do it without like an instruction guide? Paul says Ikea. That's my first thought. I don't know about you, but I have had times where I've opened these amazing flat boxes. You know, I don't, I'll never understand how you can get a couch in a flat box, but <laughs> somehow they do it. But then when you open it up, occasionally I've had a situation where, well, there's no, there's no guide. There's no little uh, cute little cartoon to tell me what to do. And so, you know, I, I always think, I don't know about you, but I always think like, I can figure this out. And so I spread all the pieces out and they're all over the floor and I get a little, you know, this organized this and that. This never goes well, by the way. Now, I have tried this on enough occasions to know that uh, doing it this way not only uh, can be a problem when you don't have the instruction guide that goes with that item, but I've also learned that sometimes when you have multiple boxes and you start mixing and matching pieces together, then it really becomes a problem, right? Because in the end, you can try as hard as you want, but the reality is that sometimes we cannot fit the pieces and the parts together. And, and matter of fact, we learn the hard way, more often than not, that the stuff is just never going to go together properly, right? There are lots of things like that in our lives, but, but what about when it comes to a spiritual understanding or, or a faith understanding of how things either fit together or don't fit together? We've been walking through the Gospel of John, and we've seen throughout this time that these, these amazing contrasts uh, between, you know, dark and light and night and day and, and all of these kinds of extremes. And today we're going to run into that uh, as well. And, and I got to be honest with you, this is like full disclosure. This has been a really, really difficult message to put together. There are some times where I just feel like, oh, whew, the Lord has got this and I'm just writing away and it's just wonderful. And then there are times like this where I, I feel like I'm still in this moment trying to wrestle this to the ground. Lord, what do you want? What do you want to tell us today? And so we're on, I'm telling you this because we're on this journey together. All right. So before we get started, would you just please pray with me and let's ask the Lord to, to be here and to deliver his message to us today. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy and your presence. And Lord, sometimes in the midst of confusion and in a confusing world that we live in, Lord, we need you for wisdom, for clarity, for deliverance. Lord, help us to turn to you not to anything else. Help us to see things with your eyes and hear things with your ears. And Lord, now in this moment, would you just, by the power of your Holy Spirit, by his presence, would you just speak to our hearts that we might be transformed into who you're calling us to be. 
We cannot do this without you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so a couple of, like, to get us kind of up to where we're headed today. This is a tough scripture, by the way, so you'll hear it soon enough. But up till now, Jesus has been talking with his disciples, and, and it's been really, really hopeful. We've heard some of the biggest and best promises that Jesus has made ever contained in the last several weeks. And part of the reason for that is that the disciples are they're very concerned about what is going on. Jesus has been talking about how well now he's going away, which really means that he knows his hour is coming. We've talked about that in the Gospel of John. His hour is coming. He's going to be arrested. He will ultimately be crucified. And so he's going away. And the disciples, they don't want this to be true. They don't understand what he's talking about. They're, they're, they're trying every way they can to say, Lord, isn't there another, isn't there another way? And Jesus continues to say, no, this is what I came for. And he continues to give these amazing, lavish promises to comfort their troubled hearts, to give them peace that doesn't come from within them, but comes from outside of them. And that's what's been going on for the last several weeks. We've been talking all about that. But then today there's a big shift. There's a big shift. And it's, it's big enough that it almost feels like whiplash honestly. And so we're going to look at John chapter 15, and uh, specifically we're going to look at verses 17 to 25 today. So I'm just going to read this, and then I want to take a look at some very specific things that we find here in this passage. This is my command. Love each other. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours too. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. Isn't this a dramatic shift? In just one verse, love each other, and the rest of these verses, hate, 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 hate. This contrast between love and hate is overwhelming. And, you know, Jesus doesn't pull any punches here. He doesn't try to soften it. He tells them the unfiltered truth. The world will hate you. And at least to some degree, if you're a Christian... You know this is true. You know this is true. Of course, the degree to which we've experienced this kind of thing varies all over the place. It's, it's not the same and it's not consistent. But if you're a Christian, you have experienced some kind of rejection or hatred as a result of that faith. Depending on where you are in the world, it can mean all the way up to and including paying for your faith with your own life. And so 
It's important for us to understand that this, in a weird way, is yet another promise from Jesus. Up till now, these promises we've been talking about have been things that are comforting. Now, this promise is a resting, but it doesn't make it untrue. We've all experienced that it is true. Christians have been persecuted in one way, shape, or form since Jesus walked the earth. And it's going to continue to happen. It will continue to happen. But it's not just important for us to know that we should expect it to happen, because we should. But it's also important for us to understand a little bit more about why. Why is this happening? Why did Jesus say that they, the world will hate you, the, the world will persecute you? Why did he say that? And so I want to take a look. There are three answers that Jesus gives to that question in this passage that we're looking at today. And so I want to go over those just kind of one at a time here. And, and the first is that he says in verse 18, the world hated Jesus first, right? Verse 18 says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Now, we have seen this, this hostility toward Jesus escalating all the way through our time in the Gospel of John. It, it started even all the way back at the end of John chapter 2. It, it said Jesus knew what was in their hearts. And so then it actually got said out loud when we got to chapter 5. They made plans to arrest him. They plotted to kill him. And so this hatred for Jesus is, is escalating as we go, and it's, it's coming to a peak, and we will eventually get there. But, but right now, that, is, that tension and that hatred has been rising all along the way, because especially the people that were in the religious system of the day, they were very, very upset with Jesus, very upset with him. They thought he was a fraud. They thought he, he was uh, demon-possessed. They, they thought he was a blasphemer. They thought he was insane. That nothing about this Jesus fit in to their understanding of the way things ought to be. And so the conclusion to all of that was, this guy has got to go. He's got to go. He's a real problem, and that problem needs to be eliminated. So they plotted to kill him. Which, when you think about it, is, is, is actually pretty amazing, right? Because Jesus was going around doing all of these amazing things, caring for people, healing people. He fed people. Matter of fact, in chapter 11, he even raised someone from the dead. Why are they rejecting him? Why are they hating him? Why are they persecuting him? He was, he was certainly loved by some, but it was a small number compared to the number of people who hated him. People hated him, and people hate him now. People hate Jesus today. And so if we start really trying to, well, what, what is it? If he's doing these good things, and people are amazed by the signs and wonders, then how can they, they hate him? Well, we, we talked about this, well, I guess it's been several months ago now, but in John chapter 7, Jesus was getting ready to go to this festival in Jerusalem, and his brothers were kind of mocking him and saying, well, why don't you go there now? Why don't you go there now? And Jesus was saying, no, I, I have to wait for the right time. You don't understand this, but I have to wait for the right time before I go. And they were kind of, you know, egging him on, saying, well, you need to get there. Why, why not go now? 
And Jesus said something very revealing in chapter 7, verse 7. Listen to this. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. I testify that its works are evil. Well, now, now we're getting somewhere. But this, this reveals a deeper truth than what we first might think. It's, it's not that Jesus is going around, you know, calling out evil wherever he sees it, like evil, 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 evil. That, that's not what he's doing. And, and he wasn't sitting at a desk somewhere, you know, giving commentary on all of the evils of the world. No, he was out with the people and he was encountering people wherever they were at. One by one, he interacted with the people. And what did he deal with? He dealt with their heart. He dealt with the condition of their heart. He got right in to what was at the core of the person. And he offered them one after another. He offered them a new way, a new life that was only possible through him. But it didn't quite fit in. It was so far outside of what they were familiar with, so far outside of what they understood. Matter of fact, it was so far outside, it was outside of the world itself. It was outside of the world. And that's the only reason he could make these kinds of claims, this, this, this kind of claim for this authority that he says he has to testify against the evils of the world. The only way he has that kind of authority is to first come from outside of the world. He wasn't from the world. He was outside of the world and came into the world. We know that. We saw that all the way back in John chapter 1. The word became flesh and came and dwelt amongst us, came from outside into the world to be in the world, but certainly not of the world. So he never fits in. He never fits into the world. And people hated him for it. But he didn't fit into the world. And guess what? He tells us right here, neither do his followers. Not only are his disciples hated both then and now because first Jesus was hated, but they're also hated because Jesus, along with his followers, no longer belong to the world. Jesus and his followers are, in fact, out of this world. Jesus and his followers are out of this world. That's the second reason why the world hates disciples of Jesus. That's what he says in verse 19. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. Now, when we come to know Jesus and trust Jesus, and when we, we follow Jesus, then we are no longer part of the world in the way that we were before. We've been plucked out, plucked out of the world. Not because we somehow, you know, found our way out or found the treasure without a map or something like that. No, it's because Jesus himself chose us out of the world, just like he did these disciples. He chooses you and me when we come to know him and trust him and follow him, then he plucks us out of the world. This is part of what Abby talked about last week. In verse 16, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, I, I just chose you to save you for your benefit alone. Have a nice day. 
No, he, it says, that verse 16 goes on, it says, and I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit that lasts, or fruit that is eternal. He plucked us out of the world for a purpose. And he did it so that it's possible for us to live in the world and at the same time not be of the world. But all this talk about the world, the world, the world, the world, the world, the world. Like we can get all kinds of tripped up and confused. What, what is exactly is he talking about here? And the word here that's translated over and over again as the world is cosmos. Is, that's the Greek word, cosmos. It's where we get all kinds of words. Uh, and, and what it means is not the physical world, not the, the physical structure and the physical things. It's not matter and stuff like that. What he's talking about is cosmos means the way things are ordered, the systems of the world, the way things are arranged, the way, the way society, how people live, who and, and, and what people trust, who and what people prioritize. That's what he means by the world, this, this cosmos. And in this particular case, there are other places where this word is used either in a neutral sense or, or in a positive sense in some cases. But in this particular case, cosmos is used with a negative connotation. It, it means something bad, it means something actually evil. And we might start to understand this a little bit more when we consider, remember that in the beginning, God created. And over and over again, it says, God was pleased. God said, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then at the end, he says, it's very good. So it was good and it was perfect. And the cosmos, the order, the way things were arranged was just the way that God wanted it. But when our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they listened to the serpent and they chose to do things their way, what they really were choosing is, well, we think we can order things better. We think we can do it our way and it will be better than God would ever. Instead of having a God, we could be our own God. Then we could make whatever systems we want. We could make whatever order we want. And then we'll be in charge. We'll be the ones calling the shots. They turn their back on God. And the cosmos, in this particular way that we're talking about it here, has been corrupted ever since. That's what it means. That's what the origin of sin, when we talk about sin, that's what we're talking about, is turning our back on God and saying, you know what? We're going to do this ourselves instead. Now, you and I might think, though, that sounds all theoretical. No, we, we do this all the time. We do this all the time. We live in a world, in a cosmos, that is continually corrupted by sin. Continually corrupted by sin. Matter of fact, you might even make the case that it's getting worse faster, right? Look around. But here's what I want to make sure that we understand, because this, we can all get fired up about all this, and we can start making all kinds of conclusions, and we can completely miss the point. What I mean by that is we have got to get this through our minds. Sin 
is the root of the problem. Sin is the root of the problem, not people. Sin is the root of the problem. Paul helps us see this in Ephesians chapter 6, where he says, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities of darkness and evil in the spiritual realm or the spiritual world. So this, this evil that's being played out, the source of it is coming from the evil one himself. Sin is the problem. And it's very, very difficult for us to keep that straight, especially when people are the ones that drive us crazy, right? People are the ones that identify themselves in our lives as the problem. And so we start to label them as our enemy. And we quickly then get confused about who the real enemy is. Don't think this is by coincidence, folks. This is by design. The enemy, the evil one, whatever you want to call him, Satan, the accuser, the thief, he comes to steal and kill and destroy and divide and to separate and to pit people against each other and all of this kind of stuff. And we play right into his hands over and over and over again. Because when we don't get our way and when we don't think that, oh, I would do it this way, blah, 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 and we start to engage and we start to fight the world's battles, not recognizing that the enemy is really a spiritual enemy called sin, then what ends up happening is we point at one another and we say, okay, anybody that doesn't think like me, talk like me, believe like me, look like me, live like me, they're my enemy. And we do this over and over and over and over again. And because of that, we think, well, if we can just come up with the right system, if we can just order things in the right way, then these out-of-control people will be brought into control. And then we won't have any more problems. Well, how's it working out? Talk about pounding sand. The truth is that no matter how we scatter out the parts and how we then try to take and put those pieces together, it doesn't ever fit. It doesn't ever fit. Jesus is telling us that it won't fit. To follow him means that we're not part of the world in the same way that we were before. We no longer belong to the world, and therefore the world's solutions will not fix this problem. In other words, no matter how hard we try to fix the systems of the world, if we try to use worldly ways to fix spiritual problems. It's already doomed. It's already doomed. It doesn't work. As they say, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Right? The only way to win this game, the only way to win this game in the world is not to play it. Instead of turning on one another, we have got to turn to Jesus. Jesus is the only answer. There is no political answer that will fix this problem. Jesus is the only solution. There is no social program that will ever fix this problem. Jesus is the only God 
Our God is not the government. People have got to come before politics. If you are a Christian and you call yourself a Christian, then you have no choice. There is no way out of this. People have to come before politics, period. And that, friends, is not the way the world works. It's completely incompatible with the world, matter of fact. It's irreconcilable. The kingdom of God, we can call it, other, the other gospels call it the kingdom of God, or they call it the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of God. There's this, again, this contrast. The kingdom of God is completely incompatible with the kingdom of the world. And remember, when, when the people saw the good things that Jesus was capable of doing, they wanted to grab him and make him king. And he said, no, I'm not that kind of king. I don't fit in to the systems of the world. And so as his followers, if you are a Christ follower, if you are a disciple of Jesus, then the truth is also that true Christ followers do not fit into the systems of the world either. True Christ followers do not fit into the systems of the world. But, but why? Why don't we fit? Why don't we fit? Well, there's a big reason, and we miss this most of the time. Because as Christians, we are indeed called to stand apart. And we're called to stand outside of all of these failing systems and all of these failed solutions. And we're also called to see and to recognize them for what they truly are. The, the root of them is in evil itself, incompatible with God's ways. But we're supposed to stand out all outside of all of that and do what? We are supposed to point people to Jesus. Okay, is that what we're doing? And, and when you say, well, po point, point people to Jesus, is that by, well, being the biggest jerks we possibly can be? Because that's what it sure feels like, at least in the United States at this particular moment in the evolution of the church as we understand it. it, it is that the way we're supposed to do it? We're trying to try to be the biggest jerks we possibly can be? Is it by uh, demanding that we get our way? Is it through trashing one another so that uh, people just relent and, and finally do it our way? That's not what Jesus has said over and over again. We've spent four weeks now talking about it. What has he said over and over and over again? We don't fit into the systems and the schemes of the world and people know it by the way that we love one another. The way that we love one another. Is that what we're known for now? Is that the kind of witness that we're bringing to the world about who this Jesus is? Are we doing it by loving one another? Because that, Jesus has said over and over again, is our greatest witness to the truth about him. That's how the world knows that we stand outside of the systems and the order and the cosmos that's failed and corrupt. And instead, we're citizens of a completely different kingdom. Not a kingdom of this world, but a kingdom that is God's kingdom. The kingdom of God. And, and the reality is we're so tempted to get involved in the ways of the world that I would argue that most of the time we don't know the difference anymore between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. We're too cozied up in a lot of ways to even be able to see and tell the difference.
And so I want to just go over some of these discrepancies between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. The world says, you are the most important. And the kingdom of God says, God is the most important. The world says God's word, well, you know, it, it might be helpful as long as it supports your preferences and desires. Well, then it's helpful. Yeah, you can use it then. The kingdom of God says we surrender our preferences. We surrender our desires to the authority of God's word and God's will. We lay down our dreams and desires in favor of following God instead. That is very countercultural. The world says, do whatever you want with your body because it only belongs to you. And the kingdom of God says, wait a minute, our bodies are now temples of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Therefore, your body is not your own. It belongs to God. So act accordingly. The world says you've got to be abundantly fearful. You've got to live with a great amount of scarcity mentality. And the kingdom of God says be abundantly generous. Be abundantly generous. The world says, well, all religions are a way to God. And the kingdom of God says, well, no, Jesus is the only way to God. That's very inconvenient. It's very exclusive. And the world hates it because the world so desperately wants to find a different way. The kingdom of the world says, elevate yourself at the expense of others. The kingdom of God says, elevate others even at your expense. The kingdom of the world says, hey, it's okay to cut corners and, you know, kind of cheat a little bit as long as nobody sees. And the kingdom of God says, well, God sees right into your heart. You can't hide anything from him. The world says, never apologize, never admit you're wrong. Always let others know you're right and they're wrong. And the kingdom of God says, ask for forgiveness and also be quick to forgive others. The world says truth is relative. We, we can't really know anything. And it's all determined by our feelings and our preferences. And whatever you feel like is true, that's what must be true. And the kingdom of God says, no, truth is a person. So we turn to Jesus to know what is true. And the world says, use one another to get what we want, and then we'll show everybody that we're in charge. Dominate others. Force them to comply. And the kingdom of God says, love one another as a testimony showing that we're not in charge. Matter of fact, God is in charge. Jesus has called us to love one another. How are we doing now in terms of representing the goodness and the mercy and the grace that has been shown to us? If you're a Christian, how are we doing at reflecting that love out to the people that God loves, the people that God created? Is the church as a whole now known for how it loves people or for how it hates people? What kingdom are we really living in? And are each of us known for the ways that we follow Jesus? Or are we known for how well we fit in with the world? None of this is easy. In fact, we know that it's difficult, it's costly, but it is what we are called to do, even if we have to pay for it with our lives, which 
There are people all around the world that do exactly that every day, every day. You and I might not experience that here and now, but that doesn't mean it isn't happening, and it doesn't mean we shouldn't care about the fact that it is happening. If we believe and we trust in Jesus, the good news is that we have actually been baptized into his death. We no longer have to fear death because we have been baptized into his death. No longer does the world have any power or control over our final destiny. Even if we are persecuted to the point of death, death is not the end. Christ has been raised from the dead and he has invited you and I into that new life with him. Therefore, there is no reason to live in fear. We can live with this joy that we can't manufacture but this joy that comes from knowing and trusting and believing in Jesus alone. This is something that the world will hate us for because if we respond to the world's hatred with the love that Jesus asks us to show and to demonstrate and to reflect, it doesn't mean that we're gonna win friends. The world will still reject us as his followers. There is nothing we could ever do that would satisfy the world's demands other than to comply with its order and its system. And we cannot do that as followers of Jesus. Now, John, who wrote the, the gospel, also wrote several letters. And in, in his first letter in chapter 3, uh, I want you to listen to these verses 11 through 15. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So how are we living? Where is our faith? Are we like Cain or are we like Abel? Are we living and using and believing and trusting in the systems of the world and then all the while as a footnote saying like, oh yes, but by the way, I am a Christian. Or do our lives actually demonstrate that we believe this to be true and that the spirit is actually working in and through us to love one another, even when we don't feel like it, even when we don't want to, even when we don't think people deserve it, are we loving one another? This, this is incompatible. The world does not understand this. The world will continue to reject this. Why is that? Well, that's the third reason. It's because the world does not know God. It thinks it does. Many times. It's either chasing the wrong thing as God or it's trying to tell you that you can be your own God. But the world does not know God. That's what uh, Jesus says in verse 21. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Now, every other religious system, every other attempt at organizing things is always trying to find a way to get either get to God or to be God. And yet we just heard that Jesus says he came to us, to pluck us out of all of that and to show us how to live in a way that the world will never understand. He came for us. He died for us. He saved us. And now he has commissioned us 
to be his messengers, to be the deliverers of his good news. He sends us out into the world knowing that we will be rejected. We will be mocked. We will be made fun of. We will be inconvenienced. We may even be persecuted. That's what he says in verse 20. Remember what I told you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. But here's, I just want to take a moment and I want us to be very careful about this because I think a lot of times, at least the church, I'm not talking about the worldwide church. I'm talking about the church in the United States at this particular moment in time. We are quick to call everything persecution. We, we, we cry persecution as quickly as LeBron James cries foul. It, it's not that way, okay? We, we're, we're using this idea of being persecuted as an excuse, as a write-off, as permission to be the biggest jerks we possibly can be, which is antithetical to what Jesus has told us over and over and over and over again. Love one another. How are we doing? And so this idea of persecution, it's not only insensitive to label things as persecution that aren't. And I'm not saying that there aren't inconveniences and there are, I mean, I just tried to, uh, we're trying to use a project management tool uh, in the office and I tried to, to apply for the, the nonprofit discount, right? And it, I got denied because it says you cannot uh, promote one kind of faith. You must promote all faiths equally. Now, do I cry persecution? Honestly, no. If I want the project management tool, I pay the full price, okay? That's not me being persecuted. That's me being inconvenienced. But we are so quick to say, oh, we're being persecuted. And meanwhile, there are people all over the world that are being drug out of churches, that are being separated from their families, that are being cornered, disowned, murdered, beheaded, all for their faith in Jesus. So we've got to keep this in perspective. We're so quick to run to the end. And we're so quick to use this scripture a lot of times as justification to behave very, very badly and very contrary to the way that Jesus has called us to behave. But forget about the outside world just for a moment. What about persecution in the church? We love persecution so much, matter of fact, that we're not satisfied with just being persecuted by the world. We decide that we've got to persecute one another, right? Why worry about the persecution of the world when we're doing such a great job of it ourselves? Christians at this moment in time are just after. There is no better example than this cesspool called social media, okay? How frequently do we see such disappointing ways that Christians, so-called Christians, are talking to one another. Now, even though it wasn't social media in the way that you and I understand it today, James uh, wrote about this in, in uh, chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. He says, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. So I think it's important for us to just recognize and remember that when we're talking about persecution, the way that Jesus is talking about persecution here, 
This kind of persecution brings the church together. It doesn't tear it apart. When the church is persecuted, people come together. That's what Jesus was telling the disciples over and over again. Love one another, care for one another, encourage one another, because you will face hostility in the world. You will face hatred in the world. But can we come together united around the truth of who Jesus is? Or will we continue to wage war against one another using the weapons of the world? That, I believe, is what we're faced with today. It does not mean that we will agree on everything. It does not mean that there won't be difference in perspectives and approaches and everything like that. But if we remain united in the fact that Jesus came for us, died for us, was raised for us and invites us into new life with him, then we have a pretty good start of living in the kingdom of God instead of continually subjecting ourselves to living in the kingdom of the world. Will we love one another? Will we support one another? Will we encourage one another? Will, will we intercede on behalf of those who are being persecuted and paying for their faith with their life? Will we have confidence in the promises of Jesus, even in a world that is trying to steal our joy and steal our peace? Will we find our hope and life in Jesus? That, I think, is the question that is put before us today for this moment in this world at this time. I pray that we will find our hope and our life in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being with us, for showing us, for guiding us, for leaving us not to put the pieces together and try to figure all this out, but instead to trust that you have put it together. Lord, help us to follow you in great confidence into where you are leading. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.